This is needful. Not to listen to me. I know some of you, particularly those of you who, are, who have been visiting with us for here recently, like, wait a minute, we just didn't we have to watch him while we sang, and now we got to hear him preach again. Um, but that's what we come for. There is there is a need to be fed. This is not the only time we should be fed. This is not the only time we read the word. This is not the only time that we pray. But it is so important as we consider worship that we make this focal point. This is, as a church, being the pillar and grounds of truth. We have the words of life as we have them in the scriptures. And so we dedicate this time to the preaching of God's word. I count it a privilege to do so, and thank you for your attention. As we look today in the second chapter of the book of James, so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there. If you have your study guide, I'm not sure what page that's on. You'll have to uh, find that. Uh, perhaps you earmarked it uh, sometime during this past week, or maybe you can find your place from last week. But today we're going to be looking at the issue of living out the gospel of Jesus. I'm just going to go ahead and put this out front. This is probably going to be the most unusual and inappropriate lead-in to a sermon that you probably have ever heard. Uh, but I hope that the, the point will stick somehow or another. But I was thinking this past week as I had been preparing, and then you know, as, as you prepare for a lesson or a sermon, you're always trying to make sure that you don't get too locked into an idea or have everything, you know, like a week ahead, of course, I procrastinate anyway, but you don't want to get too much. And then you're continually thinking to be what would be fresh and something that would be sort of relevant, hopefully, to everyone else, just not to me, because if I'm the only one getting the joke, that it's not a lot of fun laughing by yourself. Uh, but this past week, I was working out in the yard, moving some large rocks. And uh, you want to, if you live out in the country, you want to do that earlier in the spring than later, because Sooner or later, if you turn over a rock, you're going to find a what? A snake. Yeah, a snake. And everybody's happy to see snakes. Everybody enjoys snakes. Uh, I grew up loving snakes as long as they were either in a glass cage or on TV, sometimes in a book. But, um, but as I've grown older and as I've learned to appreciate the purpose of snakes, then I try to be manly about it. I try to be macho. I haven't gone into the cancel culture yet to where I still want to be a man. I don't want to be afraid of a little snake. But I'm still human, so I, I am to some degree. But I turned over a rock about so big, and sure enough, there was a black snake. Thankfully, it was only about 15 inches long and about no wider than my little finger. But there it was. And, and it's not the first time I've come across since we've lived back out on the farm. And so it didn't shock me. It didn't startle me. Now, if this had been one of those eight-foot-long racer black snakes I've seen in the past, I probably would have split quickly. Uh, but this was one of those situations where, you know, I was understood. This, I'm not going to, as my, as soon as I told my dad that I found this, saw the snake under the rock, he said, you killed it, didn't you? Of course, he hasn't seen a other than dead snakes. Those are the only snakes he likes, and he doesn't even like those to be around very long. But I had to explain to him once again, you know, in a very educated, you know, mature sort of way, well, Dad, you don't want to kill the black snakes because there's a purpose for those, right? They kill all the other bad snakes. Uh, and I have to keep reminding myself of that when I see one, that, you know, I, I just need to chill out. I just need to go ahead and let them live their course because I'd rather see that snake than one that when it bites me, I die. So, uh, so I go through this process in my mind, convincing myself, and then I talk to him knowing that I'm not going to convince him. He's 82 years old. I'm not going to tell him anything. He's you know, new. So... But in doing so, it still was like, you know, I, when I, I did take a long stick and pick this, I didn't pick it up with my hands. I'm not that brave yet. I'm not like Brandon's friend who's got a python or something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm not that crazy or smart or either one. But I didn't put them over towards my house because I don't want the snake in my house. So I went over towards the woods and put them over towards the woods. And hopefully he would keep going that direction and eat the rats and the other snakes that way. Because the last thing I want is a snake in my house or in my porch. I've, I've had that experience before. And the reason why I'm thinking, why in the world would I be so afraid of something that's much smaller than me? And in most cases is going to be less harmful than I could be to it. 
but yet it's something about it. And and the more I thought about it, it the more I reminded myself, it's probably because it, it's quick and unpredictable. I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, it can all of a sudden be just sort of, you know, coil back like it's afraid of you, and then all of a sudden, you know, move like that. Hopefully that didn't scare anybody. Molly, that, that didn't get you there. But it's unpredictable. I know it's healthy for my environment. I know it's protective for my environment. I know it has some good purposes to it. But at the same time, there's a certain element that if I'm in a room by myself with a snake that's about three feet long, I'm going to cry like a girl. And I'm sorry, again, I'm being very culture insensitive there by saying that. But because I know boys can cry pretty loudly, too. I've been one. So. Um, and that sort of reminds me of the book of James. See, this is the unusual <laughs> lead into the sermon, because as much as the last time I spoke that I told you how much I love the book of First Peter. Relates so much to the one who the Holy Spirit used to write that book. The book of James, I know it's good for me. I know I need it, but you know what? I don't want to be around it because it's uncontrollable. I don't know exactly where it's going to ask me to do. See, early on in James' book in chapter 1, <laughs> he tells believers to count it all joy when you fall into different types of trials. Now, anybody who talks that way, I'm like, where did you get that from? But that's what he says. And as much as I would want to convince you that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, when the word of God says that to me, I'm like, however, because I have to be ready to count it all joy to what, regardless of how severe and what type of trial that I come to, Knowing that God is sovereign and God, knowing that God is going to use it for his good and for my good and for his glory. I don't know exactly where that's going to lead me because there are some circumstances I can tell you right now. I don't want to be underneath them. I might be able to tell you that now if I had to go through this, I think I could handle that pretty well. I think it, through my experiences in life and through the relationship, this over here, I might be able to handle that. OK, so so that's OK, God. But. At least give me a week's notice to either prepare or run away. One of the two. But yet the book of James is something that each of us as believers in Christ, not that it's any more important than any other passages of Scripture, it's essential for our faith. Primarily because it teaches us about our faith. So as we go through this very practical book, let's not get so caught up in the fact that what James is trying to make clear is the genuine nature of a Christian's faith in the gospel of Christ. Now, why is that necessary today? Because we live in a world that didn't just change today. For the last 2,000 years of church history, there have been individuals who have tried to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and either take away or add to. There have been those who say, because Jesus Christ has died for your sins, you're forgiven. It doesn't matter what you do from here on out, because once saved, always saved. You're on your way, brother. Now, it's a good idea that you don't live crazy and sinful and everything like that, but don't worry about it. You're saved. That's dangerous. There's elements to that that's true, but there's a lot of elements to that that will send you straight to hell. But then we have on the other side, that yes, Jesus Christ has saved you, and particularly when we look in chapter 2 today, that it has saved you, and there should be some results of that. Sometimes we'd like to tack on some things out. In order for you to believe that you've got some real genuine faith, brother, you need to make sure that this is happening in your life. You need to make sure that you've made this decision. You need to make sure you see this cultural issue this particular way. You need to make sure you see this social problem in a particular way. You need to make sure that you've got this spiritual issue wrapped up. And we add to the gospel. Thinking somehow that if we can convince people that we somehow got all the problems solved when we come to know Christ as our Savior, that that is the only time when we can be secure in our faith. Hopefully, we will have a better understanding and a clearer confidence in that which we have placed our, our faith in. 
so that whether it be issues of anger, obtaining wisdom, or just simply being doers of the word of God, as James has brought us through, through chapter one, that we will live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll begin reading in verse 14. Up to this point, he's been talking about the relationships within the church. And James says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now before we fall off the, the wagon here, they can get caught up in the social issues of James Day and our day and start looking at the practical rather than the theological. Let's make sure we understand that James is using this situation as an illustration. Not that it's not reality, not that it's something that doesn't touch our lives, but James is not writing this letter so that we don't know how to clothe and feed people. Our, our church, our sister church that we prayed for this morning, Rosemont Baptist Church, every fourth Saturday, they open up their fellowship hall. They have a closed closet, a food pantry. They invite the neighborhood to come in. They share the gospel with everybody who comes through. Wonderful ministry. But that's not what James is getting at. He's not trying to, now this is how you start your, your program. He's just using this as an illustration. However, this illustration is real life. Now, James is, it's almost as if you, you're convinced that James was saved out of poverty. You almost get the understanding that, that James himself, this James being the brother of Christ, not the apostle, he was killed under the by King Herod early on in church history. But this James that writes this letter is actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who became a believer, obviously, after the resurrection, because the Gospels tell us that James is, or Jesus' brothers and sisters, including James, thought he was crazy. That he was out of his mind. But apparently after seeing the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ by his grace saved him. But James is, has already mentioned in verses 3 and 4, chapter 2, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 6, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Later in chapter 5, come now, you rich, weep and howl for, your, for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your, uh, have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. <laughs> Man, also makes you want to be afraid to have anything. But we have to understand that, again, James is not making a social issue here where we need to try to change society, but he's just trying to remind us of not only what Jesus taught, but what even the Apostle Paul warned about being rich. It is so easy if we have things in this world to become less dependent on God. It is so easy when we are controlled by the riches and the wealth that we enjoy to use that to leverage ourselves against other people. It's easy to get so caught up in what we have that we do like that foolish man did and build a bigger barn so that we could reap more stuff so that we could have more security. And God says all of that's a lie. Now, there were plenty of rich people in Scripture that are people of faith. As a matter of fact, one we're going to look at here in a little bit, Abraham. He was a rich man. Job, the man we learn more about patience from anybody else in Scripture, was a rich man who lost it all and then got double what he lost when God restored it. There were ladies who, like Lydia in the book of Acts who was a rich woman. She was a businesswoman who was helping under, or not undermine, she was underpinning the, the ministry of Paul. 
So there's nothing sinful about being rich. However, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's when you become dependent on it, when it starts getting its clutches on you. It's like the rich young ruler who in thinking he had accomplished everything that the law had required him to do, Jesus said, go and sell everything you got because he knew that's exactly what would have to happen for him to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Christ. And when Jesus told him to do that, what did he do? He turned around sad, knowing he couldn't do it. Now, let's face it, folks, in our flesh, we can't do it either. There's not a person, I don't know each and every one of you. I've, I've met a few of you this morning before the service. Some of you I've known for years now. But you know what? There's none of us in this room that is not rich. We're not. We are, we are all wealthy when it comes to the way this world lives. When you think about the largest percentage of the population of this world, they're not living like we do. A lot of them don't have the electricity to run this many lights. They don't have the ability to have a projector to show them on the screen what the Bible's saying. There's a lot of them who don't even have printing presses to even print out the Bible for them or any other type of literature for that matter. Now, within our culture, within our society, there might be a large degree of differences within being wealthy and not so wealthy. We live in a nation where people don't even want to go to work because the government enhances their life to the point where they can make it. I'm not trying to get political here, but I'm just saying that we live in such a prosperous nation that even what we give to the government is able to satisfy, which, by the way, let me just insert this one here parenthetically, should have never been the case because the, that's the job of the church. And we wonder why the church doesn't have any influence in our nation anymore. It's because we let the government do what God called the church to do. I'm sorry about that. Parentheses closed. Back to James. In James' day, it was easy to see one who was poor. It was easy to see the men and women come in with their fine apparel. as opposed to the man coming in barely sackcloth. And just like it is in our day today, it'd be real easy for the prominent pastor of the church, not saying, Pastor, pastor Charlie, you're prominent, but not this prominent, not the thing, because there's nobody sitting on the front pew. We live in a society where nobody wants to sit on the front pew. Now, for those of you sitting on the back, that's not your call to come forward, but... But in James' culture, the rich people, and I, and I hate to sound stereotypical here, but oftentimes they would laud themselves, expect to be treated differently. And so they would expect to be seated in prominent places so people could see them. And the last thing you want to do as a church leader is those people think that you not only do you associate with people who are poor and don't have anything, but you're actually going to put them in a place of prominence. So this is the culture in which James is communicating. So that when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, he uses an illustration that they're really going to be able to identify just right off the bat. says, you have a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, he's not talking about who has absolute no clothes, somebody who doesn't have absolutely nothing to eat, but just doesn't have enough to sustain themselves as we are accustomed to. And all that you do is say, as you go your way, hope you get something to eat somewhere. Now, hopefully you, you, you'll find your way to get something to eat. Be warm. Be filled. Without giving them what they need, what, what good is that? Now, the language helps us out here in which the tense of the be warmed and filled is what we, what in the Greek language you call a middle passive structure. What that means is that be filled as if you had the ability to do it yourself. So why haven't you done it yet? Now, we can relate to that attitude, Right. And we have to be really careful here. We have to be very discerning. We can't just assume 
that the person who's coming up to us hungry and asking us for money or whatever, we can't just assume that it's not legitimate. However, we have to be very careful about making sure that it is legitimate. But if we know a situation where somebody's not able to help themselves, if we know that if they had the means to do it, they would have already done it, and they come and they are without the proper clothing and the proper food to sustain themselves throughout the day, and all we do is say, good luck. What kind of faith is that? We're not doing what we've called to do. You remember, Jesus is the one who says, if you give anybody a drink of water in my name, you've done it unto me. If you go on to visit the ones in prison, you visited me. To the point where his disciples like, well, Jesus, when did, when did we ever see you in prison? When did we ever give you a drink of water? And he told them it was when you see those children of mine. And you see them. And you meet their need. So this is the illustration that James uses to say that, again, it's not the practical part that we're focusing on here, even though I've spent a little bit more time than I needed to to do that. We need to understand what he's, what the point is he's trying to say is that if you have faith, it will show itself in your life. As you relate to people, the gospel will live itself out if your faith is legitimate. If in every situation you find yourself falling short of what the Bible calls us to do in relation to people in need, whether it be the gospel, whether it be physical need, whether it be uh, relational needs, if we haven't fulfilled what God has given us to do, then what kind of faith do we have? Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Sounds like a pretty good investment plan. Not that God needs anything from us, not that God needs anyone to serve him, but when we give to the poor, when we help those who are without, then it's just as if we were lending at God and God says, you know, I'm going to pay you back with interest. Now, again, this is not something that we need to be writing books and building a life upon. This is just a principle in life that we can trust God to take care of us when we obey him. As we think about this particular illustration, last thing I'll say about it, perhaps. Think about how easily we are persuaded when you're watching a movie. Somebody's situation is desperate. And it gets to the climax and you're just overwhelmed with emotion to the point where you're almost ready to cry. Maybe it doesn't take that much. Maybe all you need to see is these commercials where the, you know, the dogs and the cats don't have homes. And as soon as you see that, you just ball and you start writing money out of the check account and send it off. Or you, you were going to get the blanket with, you know, the, you know all the, just think about how easily we are emotionally moved by pictures of things that we are distantly related to. Or things that aren't even real. Yet we can encounter people at work, in our neighborhood, and in our families who are lost and dying without Christ. And in some cases, lost and doing without things that are just basic human essentials. Okay. I love Franklin Graham's ministry, Samaritan's Purse, so greatly. And it is so easy for me to do what? Here's my credit card, Franklin. You go do it, brother. You get those people on those buses and the mobile vans and everything. You just take care of it. But here, here's another place I can just write a check. Here you go. Not that that's not important. But if that's what we do to keep ourselves sort of at a distance, an arm's length distance from the real need in the world in which we live, shame on us. If we can't have a conversation with somebody like, trust me, I'm saying that like you wouldn't believe me anyway, right? Uh, there are people that I, that work under me, I'm their manager, who share with me concerns that they have. And I know their life pretty well as somebody that I, you know, that work under me. It's been kind of difficult with the, with people working at home a lot than, than normal in the office. 
But if all I do is, is just sit here and, and listen to their sob story and to the point where, to the parts where I'm actually sort of convinced that it's true, pray for you. And then move on to the next one. What, what, what kind of faith is that? Now, sometimes I can't help in the ways they need help. I can't make fathers come and live with their mothers and take care of their kids. I can't make them stop spending their money on things that are sending them to hell. I can't make them become responsible adults. There are certain things that are out of my control that they need. But if my faith stops short of telling them about what they need and who will change their life and what the direction their life should be going, then what good is my faith? You say, Mark, that would require me to, to get to know those people. That would require me to really care. That would require me to actually have a faith that goes beyond just getting me to church on Sunday morning. Yeah. Faith is dead without works. We have to understand it and remember that faith, the noun, is just simply the verb believe. So what do you believe? What you believe is what you have faith in. And when we talk about you need to have genuine faith, we mean that you need to genuinely believe what you adhere to that will make a difference. And how does that happen? Faith is proven by works. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, the demons believe, they, they believe in one God. As a matter of fact, as Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 say, that's, the, that's what we should be teaching our children and our children's children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe in one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If we don't believe, if we truly believe that there's one God, what should flow from that is that we, that we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all our soul and all of our mind. And that results in work. That results in action. The Apostle John agrees in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 and verse 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he, Jesus, is righteous. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Nothing like being black and white here, is it? Nothing like dividing the line and making a really clear distinction. There's one way you can figure out who's a child of God and who's a child of the devil. That's not to mention those of you who are a child of God and you're a child of the devil. I just did that figuratively here. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's where we get our confidence of our faith. It's because we say, I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. I believe it's true. But are there works that prove it? We have to be really careful. This is what even Martin Luther struggled with in his life. Matter of fact, he, the book of straw is what he called the book of James. It's because he just could not get confidence with saying that you're, you know, you have faith and I have my works because he was so anti-works when it came to justification. Justification by faith, that you have some blanks in your book, justification refers to the moment when a person is objectively declared righteous. 
Justification refers to the moment when a person is objectively declared righteous before God based on the righteousness of Christ's atoning death. This act declaration takes place through faith in Christ. So justification is the moment when we are declared righteous before God based on what Christ did on the cross. And this declaration takes place when we place our faith in Christ. And not as a result of human works or effort. Through justification, a person is made in the right standing before God, changing what was once an estranged and hostile relationship to one of adoption. Adoption. We weren't born children of God. We became children of God when he saved us. And he adopted us, and now we are as if we have always been children of God. But it was only because of what Christ did, not what we did. That we were justified when we placed our faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross to pay for that estranged relationship, what that was going to result in everlasting hell and punishment. And that faith, while not made up of works, not dependent upon works, is proven. By works. And then the last point of our lesson today, in verses 20 through 26, we see that faith is made complete by works. James says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Think of this question. Now again, the Bible tells us that it is the fool it says in his heart, there is no God. This is anti-God thinking here. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he gives us some examples. He gives us two from the Old Testament. Was not Abraham, our fathers, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with this work, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so you scratch your head and say, Mark, what are you talking about? You just got finished saying that justification has nothing to do with my works. But yet now James is saying, you're a fool to believe that you can have faith without works to be justified. Well, this doesn't necessarily solve all issues because there's still people obviously still struggling with this issue. But it helps us to understand that there are two different meanings found even in the Bible that relate to the term we translate justification. Let me give you two examples of each that's found in the same chapter of the book of Romans, which, by the way, oftentimes people will compare the book of James and the book of Romans and say, well, James says that you have to be saved by you're going to be righteous because of your faith and works. And Paul is always saying in the book of Romans that it's only by your faith, not works. Well, let me go to the book of Romans in chapter 3, in which, first of all, we understand, just as I was explaining earlier, that one way that justification is used is in terms of, like, acquittal. Someone is charged with a crime. They go to court. The jury finds them not guilty we say that they are acquitted. The charges no longer stand. They are no longer in violation. We have found them innocent. And that's when we think of justification, when we have been acquitted from the sin that earned us hell because of what Christ did. So that's one way and one very important way of understanding the idea of justification, that we have been acquitted from our sins. But there's a second way in which Paul also uses in chapter 3, in which justification can also mean vindication or proof. For example, in chapter 3, verse 4 of Romans, Paul says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And he's quoting from the psalmist there. But where justified is used there, it's not that God's going to be acquitted of anything. When God speaks, Nobody's going to say, oh, okay, God, well, at least you said the right thing, so we're going to acquit you from being sinful or being wrong. No, when God speaks, 
and it comes true, God is vindicated. He is justified. In other words, he is proven to be true. And James uses the word justification in that same way. He's not saying that your works are going to vindicate you. I'm sorry, he's not going to acquit you. You feeding your brother and sister who's hungry or putting clothes on their back isn't going to forgive you of any sins. But what it will do, it will justify you in that it vindicates that you are a follower of Christ because you are living out your faith. See the difference? This reason why Bible study is so helpful. This is why it's so easy for people to get on TV and on the radio and write books that will lead you so far astray that you can't see the truth. So when we think about faith is made complete by works, we're talking about a faith that justify or works that justify you in the sense that it is vindicating you or it's showing you to be who you are. Which leads us to the next paragraph where you've got some blanks here where justification is not the result of human effort or good works, but through faith in the righteousness of, and you know this one, that blank's easy, righteousness of Christ. Because even when we do good works, it's just like Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, it's not me. <laughs> it's through the faith in the one who has saved me. So although good works do not lead to justification, justification leads to good works in the life of a believer. While good works do not establish justification, they do verify. They do verify a genuine faith and make our justification evident. Evident to others. Our faith is made complete when we do good works. We're, we're not forgiven of our sins when we do good works. Our faith just demonstrates that we've been forgiven and we're living a life of faith in Christ. In other words, we're living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. In MacArthur's commentary, he speaks, he quotes a 17th, English, 17th century English preacher, which is Pretty appropriate since I'm always trying to find 17th century songs for us to sing. But Thomas Brooks says, Ah, souls, I know, I know no such arguments to work you to a lively and constant performance of all heavenly services, like those that are drawn from the consideration of the great and glorious things that Christ has done for you. Let me paraphrase. Brothers and sisters, there is, I can think of no other way for you to be motivated to do every act of godly duty for God's glory than for you to remember what he has done for you. That's the reason why we sang this morning I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. While we sang, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would, what, refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace.
So, Lord, I would be yours alone. And live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. That's hard. But it's made easier when I think about what God did for me. I fail him so, so much. But when I think about what he did for me on the cross, when I think about what he accomplished, being abandoned by his father because he was taking on my sin. That makes me want to just sort of get a little bit closer to him because that's where my hope is found. Faith is made complete by works. In our reading today, before the prayer confession, Pastor Charlie led us Ephesians chapter 2. Three verses in particular I'd like for you just to recall. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. But catch this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Think of a woodworker in a shop with an idea in mind and he starts to carve and he starts to whittle and he starts to put it on a lathe or he, he starts to kind of shave things off and he starts to get it to fit with other things. We are God's workmanship. Why? So he can put us on a shelf and say, hey, look at how great they are. No. <laughs> We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. How dare us to sit on our sofa of convenience as a Christian knowing that we have been created for good works which God pre prepared beforehand. It, I, I get it. it. It can be overwhelming. We think, well, what am I supposed to do for God? Oh, I can't do anything. I'm not talented. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what to say. I don't know. Don't worry about it. He prepared them. What he wants you to do, he's already prepared those works. What does that mean? I don't know. Except for the fact that we need to be living out the gospel. Wherever that God brings you in God's sovereign plan, he prepared the good works for you that we should walk in them. Simple. Pretty straightforward. Why is it so hard? I've still got my own agenda, God. Don't you understand that when I was 14 years old, I aspired to do this? Don't you remember when we started our family, this is what our plan was going to be? Don't you remember this is when I went to school, this is what I was going to do? Now, think again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. As long as we are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, because therein we will find ourselves living out what he has prepared for us beforehand. But it's kind of like that snake that wiggles around. I'm not sure where that's going to take me. I'm not sure what direction it's going to go. I'm afraid it's going to bite. I'm afraid it's going to hurt. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself trying to get out of the way. But it's what we need. We find ourselves walking outside of the preparation of God 
That's not only a lonely place, but that is a very dangerous, destructive place. Listen to this warning as we draw to a close. Matthew chapter 3, John the Bab- baptizer. So I started to say Baptist. I try, I try to correct that because not everybody, you know, he wasn't a Baptist yet. He would have been, I promise you. Immersing Baptist, not a you know, sprinkling Baptist. That's, I don't know where some of you came from. But when John, who was called by God to be the one who would prepare the way of Jesus Christ's ministry, to be the one who would tell, hey, the Messiah is coming. He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the religious crowd, the formal, rich religious crowd, coming to his baptism. And he said to them, thanks for coming, folks. Drop your offering plate. Hey, if you want to join with us this Sunday, come on down. No. He said, <laughs> now I know I can get a little excited. Sometimes I like to yell because it's just, you know, I can make people, you know, sit up straight, make babies cry and everything like that. But I can only imagine what this sounded like when John the baptizer, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say of yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to take these stones and raise up children for Abraham even now. Hear this, folks. Even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be laid waste. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, the one whom we have already seen, come, die, raise from the dead, and return back to glory. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft, he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's strong, but true. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, I want you to make sure that before you hit that exit door, that your faith is real. Now, you're not going to be able to perform too many. Well, you may be able to. I don't know. There may be some things that you can do in service for other people who are in need before you leave. You're not going to be able to change your life all in an instant today and all of a sudden walk out the door and say, hey, look at all I've accomplished for Christ. Look at all the good fruit. I pray this morning that you will be as the Holy Spirit encourages you to say, yes. Here's the fruit. Here they are. Here it is. There it is. I don't want to scare you this morning and thinking, oh, no, I'm not saved. But I want to scare you this morning to think that, oh, no, I'm not saved. It's not, it's not going to be because you've come to church. It's not going to be because you've got a verse in your, inside of your Bible written down. It's not going to be because you made a decision one day. It's going to be because that you gave up your life and took up your cross. And you followed him. And you're following him. 
And no matter what comes your way, you're going to keep following him. And all along the way, he has prepared good works for you and for me. And we're going to do them if our faith is genuine. But if you're here this morning and you can't, if this doesn't make any sense to you, if you find yourself recalling back from every good opportunity like a snake, may you find the grace of God this morning. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like for those who help with the singing to come this morning. As they're preparing to sing a song, Simply titled Grace. Would you examine yourself today? Are you willing to do that? Are you so sure of your place in Jesus Christ because of your faith in Him? Are you so sure that you can say, Yes, I'm his. Not because you're good, not because you're special, not because you've done great things, but because there's fruit. Are you here this morning and you're afraid to do that because you know what the truth is? You know the answer to the question before the test is even given. But let me tell you this morning that there is grace sufficient for your sin. As Leanna leads us, stand with us and the words will be on the, on the screen. I would, I would want you to focus more about what God is 